everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Total Soccer Show. I am your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is in Boston. He is not with me today. So instead, I'm going to be talking to Meg Linehan of The Athletic. Meg has had a whirlwind few days, but has taken the time to chat with us, which we very much appreciate. She was in uh, Cary slash Raleigh, North Carolina, for the NWSL Championship on Sunday. Then she was back in New York for the introductory press conference of Vlatko Andonovsky, uh, the new U.S. Women's National Team head coach. Uh, she attended both. She wrote about both. She's here to talk about both, as well as provide some updates on the U.S. players' lawsuit and the response to that suit. Uh, there have been some updates. There have been some court filings. She helps me make sense of those and many, many other topics. So uh, I will just turn it over to me asking questions to Meg. With me once again, as she has been, to help me uh, make sense of the NWSL, to make sense of the playoffs, and to make sense of the final, is Meg Linehan of The Athletic. Meg, thank you very much for taking time from your very busy schedule to talk with me today. I, I am here. I have my coffee. I am. I'm ready to go. <laughs> That's good. That is very important. I, I would not deprive you of coffee prior to recording because that would be problematic, especially because, as I said, you've been pretty busy. You were in North Carolina for the final that I'm assuming you were immediately up to New York for the announcement of mm-hmm. Vlatko Andonovsky. It's, it's very true. So I, <laughs> I filed my Heather O'Reilly story, I think, at about 1145 on Sunday night. And then I had a 4.30 a.m. alarm in order to drop off my rental car, get to the airport. So by the time I actually got to the press conference in New York City, I had already had some coffee, but then they had free coffee oh, that's good. for everyone. And I drank so much that after the presentation, when I went up to go say hello to Kate Markgraf, who I have not seen in a while, my hand was actually shaking from oh, the gosh. caffeine. And she <laughs> was very polite and just like not mentioning it to me. Uh, I had that experience once at a coach's convention, but it was uh, I was so hungover and had compensated with coffee that I was shaking. But that's uh, that's a that's a different story for a different day. Instead, I want to hear more about the press conference. Um, you were there, obviously. What was the vibe mm-hmm. in that room? Uh, because I always find it strange when the federation and the players are sort of forced to interact. And in this case, when you've got GM Carlos Cordero, new head coach, but then there's inevitably going to be questions about the lawsuit, about the state of the team. Mm -hmm. It always feels like it's going to be kind of awkward. So I'm wondering how they were up there. Yeah, I I honestly thought, um, and I wrote this too in my story about Monday, is that it was about as perfect as you could probably ask for. Like, yeah, there was a question about equal pay. But I mean, one of my favorite things was actually Vlaco not waiting for anyone to join him on the podium. He was like, I'm ready to go. I'm going to sit here. (laughs) My name tag is up there. So he was actually the first one up there before uh, Mark Graff and Cordero sat down, just like kind of looking out at us, smiling, and we were just like, okay, I guess you're ready. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the one moment really was like someone asked about equal pay. I think Waco answered the only answer he could possibly provide on day one of a new job for yep. the U.S. Soccer Federation, which is, you know, I, I think that it's I support the players in their drive and um, I think it translates well on the field and uh, avoids, you know, the actual question entirely. Um, Yeah. I know that, you you know, right. And, and Cordero provided his answer, which is I think exactly what everyone pretty much expected. But I do think that, you know, he signaled again that they would like, they would definitely prefer to handle this outside of a courtroom, which I think makes sense because no one, it's hard to predict what might happen in a courtroom, whereas I think you can at least know what's going to happen when you're trying to aim for a compromise um, in a mediation setting. Um, and then I think the only thing that really made that 
stand out even more because I think it would have been more of like a footnote on the day. But then what happened later that night where a couple of court filings came out from the lawsuit, I think then provided a, a different contrast to what was said. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into more of that later, but that was really the only thing. And I think just, you know, in terms of the rollout that they had of the day between the social media stuff, the the press conference, the fact that they had a, a special event after the press conference at the same location for fans to show up and for, you know, like insiders and, and people who have been kind of around U.S. soccer um, hosted by Katie Nolan. Like, I thought that was actually a really cool event and something that, was encouraging that U.S. soccer got that that needed to happen as well and like give a more informal place for Vlaco to talk and for people to get a sense of him. Um, and I think having Katie Nolan around just only helps that because she is obviously going to lighten the mood. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, overall, like, I, I mean, I think that any press conference tends to be inherently awkward, but that was really, you know, Vlaco is nice because he, he gives you full paragraphs as an answer, but, he's kind of in and out. Like, he's like, here's my answer. You're good. We're <laughs> moving on. All right. So. Uh, at least he's, at least he's given answers. That's a good step. So what mm-hmm. happens next then? I'm assuming there's the ID camp in December. I think I'm guessing that's going to be focused on like looking at some players who haven't gotten many chances with the senior team. Uh, do you expect new faces to be thrown in, in the next few games or will his first official uh, like games be more so the names that are very familiar to us already from the victory tour from the world cup? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see some new names in this. Um, you know, he's got two games in November. Those are the last games on the, the calendar year for the team. Uh, it's mostly that everyone is injured at this point, which, you know, like for, for Andonofsky, like he's used to that with Reign FC after the season. But, um, you know, Crystal, uh, Crystal Dunn's walking out of the locker room after the NWSL championship in a boot. And, you know, I think it's more precautionary than anything else, but, these players are tired and, and part of it too is that they do have mandatory time off. So that's why we're going to see a whole bunch of new faces in that talent identification camp in December. But you know, there's rumors that Aubrey Bledsoe is going to get a call up for the November game. So I think that, and Alana Cook was another name. Um, Grant Wall had that one. So I think we are going to see some, some players come in to these November games that we don't necessarily see all the time because, I think that there are a lot of players that just kind of need to take a nap for an extended amount of time. (laughs) And you might as well just, you know, I I don't think that there's a lot of pressure on these first two games. Um, Obviously with this program, a win is expected every single time, but I think that um, this is really just, I don't feel like there is an immediate pressure for something to come out of these two games beyond letting Andonofsky get a feel for what national team games are like, uh, different from NWSL to, to see some new faces, to start getting check-ins with the actual players. Um, you know, it's, it's basically like a week and a couple of days turnaround time between his actual announcement and these games. So I, I feel like these, this, this is the only chance he's actually going to get to like not have a huge amount of pressure for results right off the bat. 
So uh, I do have a question that I probably should know the answer to, but do not. So I'm going to ask you uh, because the mm-hmm. CBA and the like kind of contract status of the women's national team always confuses me because – and the, I guess I'll just ask you the general one and then sit back and, and allow you to do the hard work uh, because it hurts my brain. But like like if the senior national team players are – like their NWSL salaries are paid by the federation, like, like a certain number of them are, how does that factor into roster experimentation if you – like do you have to call in a set number of players? Can you swap them out individually? Like I, I guess I just don't fully understand how much the CBA dictates who can be called in and when. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some because it used to be that it was almost impossible for people to get like a meaningful amount of call ups outside of the the players that were sitting on the CBA, mm-hmm. um, and it was a limited like you could call someone in to take a look at them, but then actually like bringing them in on a like more meaningful basis that was where the struggle was. There is more freedom on that front. Um, I am unclear, honestly, in terms of like the actual obligation to call people in, but I also like, I'm not sure if a player would necessarily be mad about like missing a, this particular camp just in terms of where everyone is. Um, I mean, Crystal Dunn was out here on, on media day being like, hello, I am tired. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I love Crystal. So Dunn. I really do. <laughs> she, she really, she will tell you what she's thinking and I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I think that that's kind of a thing where, you know, NWSL salary stuff is separate in terms of, you know, they have a minimum number of players that they need to pay every year. They can always go over that because I, I think actually they have for this season. Um, but in terms of the actual like CBA agreement, in terms of like how many number of calls you're supposed to get, I, I honestly don't know if that's like 100% spelled out. It's just like, are you paid by the Federation? for being a U.S. national team player and what tier that is. So I don't know if there's like a minimum number of call-ups or even a maximum number of call-ups, but I think it's more just like if you hit that salary, you're on that salary. And they reevaluate those contracts for NWSL at least, you know, every year. Um, so I would assume that the same is, is done on the national team side as well. So I think that's more where the, the decision-making mm-hmm. comes in on that front rather than an individual camp necessarily throwing a question mark about status. That makes sense. And then uh, one final question about like this press conference uh, and the people involved. What happens next uh, for Kate Margraff? So she's hired the head coach. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are like where is the United States uh, on the women's side in terms of youth national teams? The men are obviously not doing particularly yeah. well. I'm wondering where the where the women are yeah. on that one. Yeah, I mean, I think the women are kind of on the same boat. She's I think got a lot of youth national team coaches to hire. I think they've also got a you know fill out the rest of the staff. So Andonofsky said that he was going to retain Graham Abel, who's the goalkeeping coach and Don Scott, who's the high performance coach for the U S national team. Both of those hires, I think are not even hires, but just, you know, like retaining those people is extremely important, especially Don Scott. Like I think Don Scott is, I mean, I feel like a lot of us sing her praises, but if you want to talk about behind the scenes heroes for the performance of the U S national team, I think she is top of the list. So I think they've got to fill out some of his staff as well. But then next up is definitely um, getting a full roster of coaches in place for the youth national team and, and trying to take a look at, 
you know, what needs to be done on that side. And also I think, you know, that's, that's part of why I think they wanted a GM for the women's side is because as she was saying, like, it makes more sense if you have a unified approach to the program where someone can come up through the U14s and eventually like, you know, every single person in the program is aware of the player and the, the player's role. And it is more consistent as opposed to, you know, you might get one coach calling people up and then the next coach comes along and calls up a completely different team. Mm -hmm. So having one person that has that kind of larger picture view, I think is definitely good, but I think her next like kind of immediate task now that Andonofsky is hired is youth national team coaches. And I will just say like, I'm, I'm actually writing about this for today is the amount of transparency that Mark Graff had um, in terms of how the hiring process worked, what she was looking for, you know, the technical and tactical elements involved in it. Um, I was really, I really enjoyed it. And she, like, she kind of went away, right? Like she got announced as mm -hmm. GM and then she kind of disappeared. And, you know, I've been chasing after us soccer for a while to talk to her more about big picture stuff rather than this coaching search. But I think it is really reassuring to have her like, you know, she could have just said like, I'm pleased to present Blacko and Tanofsky. And instead she was like, hello, I really want to tell you how we got here. Um, because I think it's important that you get how we landed on this coach and why I think he's the best fit. So for me, like, I think it's really nice to, to get that full, like, I mean, I transcribed it. It's like five paragraphs mm -hmm. about the process. And that's something that I remember just sitting in that room and being like, cool. I like it. It's <laughs> did, different. Did that did that statement like did you feel it to be authentic in the moment as opposed to buzzwords about possession and proactive soccer? Like did you did you feel like it was it was genuinely reflective of her approach and what she wanted from the team? I mean, I think that the possession stuff like yeah, that's the the tactical talk, but I think in terms of the actual process is where I was more interested okay, in what you. was happening in terms of, you know, the way the fact that she admitted, like, I made a lot of phone calls because I'm coming from, you know, like, she's like, yes, former, former player, but, you know, I was doing television, I was doing media, I was talking about people in a way that is different than the conversations I'm going to have as a general manager of the US Women's National Team. So the fact that she was like, okay, I just have to start calling people and getting a comfort level with them. Like, I found that super interesting. The fact that she you know, was able to kind of narrow the list. And I think that they got some no's along the way, but then to hear the process of actually pulling in the two final candidates to Chicago, the fact that they had to do the presentation, um, that they put them on the hot seat and asked them tactical questions. Like it, it was just very interesting to me to get a sense of the amount of work that went into it and her reasoning for each step of the way. Um, I, I really do want to talk NWSL at some point, but you said a thing in there that I found fascinating. Like, you, you are, like, it makes sense that people would turn down the job or maybe be, be considered but not be interested. But that is still surprising when it comes to this national team, because in my mind, when it comes to women's soccer, like, this is the job that seems to be the best job. There's, like, you're going to get to coach the best players in the world that are, like, all together that consistently win and have success. Like, why do you feel, not necessarily why do you feel like people were approached and turned it down, but, like, what would be the reasons to turn it down aside from the expectations that are so high? I think a lot of college coaches have a lot of security. 
That makes sense. And, <laughs> yeah. And so if you're a college coach and you've got, you know, you're, you're many years into that program and you know that you have some security um, going into the U.S. national team and having that be extremely high pressure and knowing that maybe if something goes wrong at the Olympics or, you know, like it's not necessarily a guarantee. Right. And so I think that if you're kind of weighing what you have now versus what you could potentially have, I I can see how people would be yeah. like, I'm good. You know what? I'm good. Thank I, you. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the stability aspect. That makes a lot of sense. Again, this is why I love talking to Meg because she makes uh, confusing things less confusing slash not confusing <laughs> at all. And I'm assuming she'll be able to do the same about uh, the NWSL. Uh, the final obviously happening this weekend. North Carolina winning decidedly, decisively. Uh, but I want to start with the <laughs> game itself. How did this final compare to previous iteration when it comes to fan support, when it comes to the overall feel of the game? I think my perception is that like like coming on the heels of the win, Women's World Cup, it seems like interest has not remained as high as it was for the World Cup, but it did seem like interest was higher this time around than in seasons past. But I am an ignorant outsider. I'm curious to hear what the insider has to say. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard to beat a final in Portland, right? We had a final in Portland last year. It was a sellout. Um, the the Portland fans are just, you know, like they they are the best at what they do, and I think everybody gets that. But I was super impressed by this championship game and not just the game itself, but the fact that, you know, the Chicago fans from Chicago local one, three, four traveled extremely well. They had a full weekend planned of activities for, for the traveling support. Um, I thought they were extremely impressive during the game. They did not let up even after (laughs) some, you know, early challenges to their team. Mm -hmm. Like it did not look good from early on and they sang for 90 minutes. They had the flags up for 90 minutes. So I was extremely impressed with the traveling support, but I was also, which I think shows like the league is in a good place. I I do think that that's a really good sign that the league has grown in a way that, I mean, I remember being at the 2013 final and the Portland fans had, I think 40, 50 people there. And that was already like, okay, this is going to be something, but, um, I think that Sunday really showed like a another sellout. It's a smaller stadium, granted, but another sellout. North Carolina fans were really into it. The the other end of the stadium, um, the uproar and some other supporters groups were were very strong. Um, they got the whole stadium to chant at one point, which is good. Um, but the fact that you know, like Budweiser was around as the the sponsor, they had stuff outside. Like there was a real legit fan zone. Um. But the fact that we had like some events finally to really go to just between men and blazers coming down to host a podcast, um, that was like a hot ticket. They were really struggling to fit the number of people who wanted to be in that room for that recording into the actual space. Um, I know for a fact people got turned away. So mm-hmm. I, I think that there is demand for this to go from a game that has like some stuff kind of that's cropping up around it to a real event. Um, And I think that's kind of where the shift is now post world cup is that there is a demand, not just for the game, but for the atmosphere around it, for the events around it. And I I think we saw that at the world cup and FIFA didn't take full advantage of it. Like, yes, they had fan zones and stuff, but you know, there is infrastructure to be built and NWSL doesn't have an all-star game yet. 
Um, there isn't like the, the sponsorship stuff beyond Budweiser there, but I think that there is a lot of potential for, you know, even I traveled to the MLS all-star game for the first time this summer and I was kind of blown away in terms of everything that happens around it. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think where the shift can probably be for 2020 and beyond is just not just having the game now, which I think over the past few years, we've, we've now really seen some big strides in terms of like the championship game being an event and having this different feel outside of the regular season, but to actually have it be this sort of, you know, almost like end of yourself Christmas in terms of bringing everyone together. The fact that you would actually maybe try to get neutral fans to travel as well, because this is the signature event of the year. Like that's what I'm really excited to see. Hopefully people push for a little bit more. What was uh, weirder for you, all of the events and like kind of celebrations and whatnot surrounding MLS All-Star Game or having to spend uh, like a condensed amount of time with George Qureshi? <laughs> well, the best part was is that George decided that um, the Airbnb that he was not in, a.k.a. my Airbnb, was the party one. Yes, and us just being like, <laughs> I would like to go to bed now, thank you. Um but no, and it, you know, for me, that was really nice just because like, A, obviously, like I, in the past, like I, I was a Revs fan, right? And now being in New York City, like I'm, I'm still like have some allegiances to the Revs. I've kind of like been like, oh, I'm going to flirt with the Timbers for a little while. But um, it was, it was cool just to like see how the other half lives a little bit in terms of what is possible. And I think that's kind of where it can be interesting for for people on the NWSL side to be like, oh, this is this is how this should work. Gotcha. Okay. And then I think it just allows people to kind of bring back some lessons and say like, hey, we don't have to like reinvent the wheel. So it is it is always interesting, mm-hmm. I think, for me to to see some MLS stuff. But yes, uh, definitely. Maybe next year I'm going to be like, okay, our Airbnb is not the party one. Thank you. <laughs> There's a special password to allow George in or not allow George in. That makes sense. <laughs> I, I, I want to stay with your experience for a moment, though, uh, because I know like when uh, Daryl and I, when we cover games, we have the luxury of knowing we're going to do a podcast later. I always feel mm-hmm. like we get like kind of uh, angry side eye glances from people because we don't have our laptops open and we're not taking like copious notes in order to structure yeah yeah, like a long form article we're kind of observing and then we take some notes and and then talk about it and then we do the show for you when you're watching a final do you have ideas about what you want to write about going in or is it just sort of a blank slate let's see what happens and let's see how the narrative builds yeah I mean I think so in this particular case I did know exactly what I wanted to write because I had already been working for two days on a Heather O'Reilly feature And that's partially because, like, I mean, Heather O'Reilly has been probably, like, my favorite player overall through, like, the time span that I've actually covered women's soccer. And um, I was lucky enough to get to know her when she was in Boston with the Breakers for a while. So I I had already written about her earlier in the season and gotten her kind of before the World Cup viewpoints of how a final season would go. And then I think her storyline was was super interesting because like they basically gave her a testimonial game during the regular season to like send her off and be like, okay, this is probably the last time you're going to play until like you might get like five minutes at the end of the championship game as like a thank you, but this is probably it. And then to have her step into a starting right back role for 
the playoffs and the championship and to basically play every single minute. And for her to, I mean, the thing that she kept saying to me is the fact that I'm considered versatile enough. Like that was a thing that she was extremely proud of because, um, you know, she does have a reputation of being a winger and kind of having this one skill set of being able to get to the end line and, and just bombing in across. And it worked for a really long time and it's worked in previous NWSL championships and also the Olympics. But I think that, for her, it was kind of a really special ending to have a different role and to still be a key part of a team that is, you know, arguably the best women's professional team in America of all time. So I knew going in, like, that was the story I was writing. So I was really just kind of trying to isolate on Heather for most of the game and, and see what she was doing and, um, you know, see the interactions that she was having with the crowd, with her teammates, just so that way it could help inform the story. So I watched that game probably a little bit differently than a lot of other people in that press box. But um, yeah, for me, like that was actually a luxury because I do typically go into games thinking I'm going to figure out what feature I'm writing about 60 minutes into it. <laughs> so for me, it was actually like, oh, I, I, I know what I'm writing. This is actually, I already have so much stuff transcribed. Um, so it was a different experience for me because I usually make my mind up very last minute in terms of what I want to write. And then I, I imagine writing a profile about the the player on the team that won always uh, helps a little bit. And the uh, courage did yeah. obviously the four no win, pretty emphatic. Uh, <laughs> that they looked so good to me. Like, and admittedly, I've only watched them. I think like four times prior to the prior mm-hmm. to this final. So I like I yeah. I am no expert, but I don't understand how this team doesn't continue to win short of them breaking up and I'm wondering how likely yeah. that is do you think they're going to be able to retain most of this squad or will we see some people leave and retire in Heather O'Reilly's case yeah I mean obviously they're they're losing O'Reilly but I do think that so in theory we're still getting a 2020 expansion team all signs point to Sacramento coming to be the 10th team next season so they've got an expansion draft to deal with and they you know, it sounds like the rules are you can only protect two U.S. national team players. Um, and I think that they have a really easy decision there in protecting Sam Lewis and Crystal Dunn. I don't think that they have any other choices in terms of who they need to protect. Yeah. So like it or not, whether it's through a trade to protect other players on their team or whether it's through the expansion draft, they're probably going to lose at least one key player on the team. And the way that the cards are built in terms of the way that they have this like really strong spine. Like, you know, I think Abby Dahlkemper is kind of the big question mark um, in terms of like who's coming back for 2020, because I, they're really going to have to work some magic to keep her on that team, I think. And, you know, what was funny is that there was this kind of side storyline of Chicago coming into a, a championship game for the first time ever and not necessarily knowing a hundred percent of what was going on. And some of that was just, I think, you know, first championship jitters and, and not kind of expecting like the full amount of media and open training and all that kind of stuff. And part of that I think was also because, I mean, even from a media standpoint, the the schedule of events changed a lot <laughs> over the span of a couple of days. So you have them on one side and then on the other side, you have North Carolina, who's now been this, through this under Paul Riley, essentially four years in a row, including Western New York flash. And they were having meetings all weekend to figure out their strategy for 2020. So that seems there's like a definitely, yeah, but it's, it's the courage. Like yeah. they are, 
I don't, it, at some point, like the way that they handle that team and the fact that they have such like a, a crazy good technical staff, um, you know, they just, they're able to multitask in a way that I think a lot of other teams can't yet. And um, yeah, I, I think that they're going to struggle to keep this team together, but also they do have depth um, and we've seen them rely on it. So even if they do lose a key player or two, I think that there is very much for them already a plan in the works for 2020 and how to make it through that. Two names we haven't talked about uh, from that team, Jess McDonald, Lynn Williams. Uh, both of them I thought were mm-hmm. excellent uh, in the final. Uh, Alex Morgan uh, c- could slash likely will miss the Olympics uh, with her pregnancy. Uh, Carly Lloyd was the immediate name that I thought of as like the replacement. She's going to come in and try to get all those minutes. Uh, but watching Jess McDonald and Lynn Williams, like I would like to see both of them or w- one of them at least, <laughs> but hopefully both of them given more opportunities and get more minutes. Do you think there's a chance we do see that under Vlatko? And is that something that you would also like to see? Because I kind of can't figure out why they haven't been able to have a bigger impact with the national team aside from, to use Jurgen Klinsmann's line, others are ahead of them. Right. And I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing with the U.S. national team is that the, the depth chart on forwards on this team is just ridiculous, like completely ridiculous. So, I mean, we felt like you haven't even mentioned Kristen Press, too. Oh, Christian yeah. Press wasn't a regular right, right, starter right, right. in this World Cup. Like, so they have a lot of options. And I, I do think, so I think one of the question marks too, I think Neil Morris tweeted about this is um, Justin McDonald is, is one thing and it's, you know, has been in the, the U.S. national team pool now for a while. So I think she is definitely going to get a look. Lynn Williams did get a national team look and then kind of fell off the radar under Jill Ellis. She's going to Australia to play in the W League this winter. So the question is, does she get the call into the talent identification camp? And does, does she come back from Australia for that? If she gets the call, probably like, I would assume that she would be like, okay, see ya. Bye. Like I'm going to go back for this camp. But um, other players have been affected before in terms of, you know, they, they choose to go to the W League so that way they can play year round. And then they get, sort of the national team look and how much of a toll that takes on them, because that's, that's a lot to ask of people. And um, Danielle Coprico from the Red Stars did it this past winter, but that's kind of also when Emily Sonnet really started to get her call-ups was when she went over to Australia and had to do the trek a number of times. So it, it is going to be, I think, kind of an interesting thing for Lynn Williams to navigate if she does get that call. I, w- I absolutely would like to see her get evaluated again because um, I think that, you know, North Carolina in general takes a lot of shots and is not always the most effective at picking shots, but also that's a huge part of their game. So I would kind of wonder what would happen if you put Lynn Williams in a situation where she has to maybe make one additional play before taking a shot and what that would turn her into as a player. And, you know, the only place that she's probably really going to get that is the national team. So, and like, I think Flacco could be the coach that maybe takes her from like a really great elite NWSL player and turns her into someone that could make a huge impact on the national team. Uh, I like I like that answer. I also love that answer even more because of the dog in the background. That's uh, that's two do- two dogs <laughs> so in like, two yes, shows for us. <laughs> I know. It's, oh yeah, I think and this happened last time as well. You, you, I think your dog yeah, and yeah. Matt Herman from yesterday's show. Uh, both of your dogs want to be famous, is what I'm guessing. 
Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> there was a dog passing by outside, and she was like, listen, this is important. You need to know about it. Well, obviously. I mean, what, what is she going to do? Let a dog walk by and not notify you? Come on. <laughs> um, Megan, yeah. I, I, you've been very generous with your time. I really uh, I don't want to take up too much of it. Have you got time for one or two more questions? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the court filings, uh, the impact they may have. Uh, I did want to go back to the lawsuit for a moment. Uh, can you talk about those court filings and sort of where we are, what the latest is? Yeah, so we got two sort of back and forth court filings the other night where I was so desperate to go to bed and then I saw the email notification that something had been filed and I was like, oh no, Yay. all right. Um, <laughs> this is going to probably be important. And it, what's funny is that this is kind of a procedural thing in terms of lawsuits of this nature. Like U.S. soccer is asking for the players to provide additional information about their income. And that's part of discovery is like asking for everything and seeing what you get back. So I got a lot of people on Twitter being like, this is normal. It still looks terrible, but the, like, don't think that it's not a normal part of what they should be doing. Um, but they're saying that, you know, they want to know how much money the players are getting from their personal brands, essentially, in terms of since the Federation gave their likenesses back to the team for them to license through the Players Association, they want to know how much money they've actually gotten from that. They want to know about salaries from professional play. And yeah, like originally the Federation had just asked for like every single tax return from the players and the players were like, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and so that's like, and that's kind of fine. I think the one paragraph that really stuck out to a lot of us looking at that document was they had one paragraph that essentially was like, um, not, you know, the NWSL exists because of us, and we really doubt that it would continue to exist the way that we support it even now, even as this role changes. And that was a very interesting paragraph, I think. Um, on the player side, they're basically saying, one, that everything about this lawsuit is, you know, it's equal pay related. It's only comparing what the men's national team players make compared to the women's national team players under one employer in this circumstance. All of this outside income is irrelevant. And also it is essentially like above and beyond what players should be expected to provide. And it's an invasion of privacy. So that was the back and forth. And yes, it's procedural, but I think the thing that stuck out again to to a lot of people is that, you know, we had this great day of U.S. national team news between death on the, the men's national team side thing and then Vlaco uh, being announced. And then to kind of wrap up Monday with this back and forth was just kind of like a really unfortunate Oh no, there goes all the momentum. Oh, actually, let, I want to stick with that because, like, I think I have had this idea that. Like a lot of this is rooted in U.S. soccer kind of having an outdated model, not really being adjusted to the times, not responding to how successful the women have been and a little bit with how unsuccessful the men have been. Uh, Molly Levinson, uh, the player's PR spokesperson, uh, she wrote an email to the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, quote, Cordero yep. is also responsible for ongoing deliberate discrimination against players on the U.S. women's national team simply because they are women, end quote. And that – like. I don't know if it was just that statement from from her, from Levinson, or everything combined. But, like, 
I think this is the first time that I felt like it does border on like the deliberate against the women's national team, against these women's players that like, yeah, like to couch it as like, oh, we've got a new coach and this is great. And oh, this guy's committed. This is great. Oh, and also we're going to do this. Like I know businesses tend to bury uh, unfavorable things whenever they can and try to Mm -hmm. hide stuff Friday afternoons. But like, do you feel as though some of this is deliberate and is like discriminatory deliberately? Kind I mean, of a big question. Really, so I know. I'm sorry to kind of drop it yeah, on you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. And I mean, part of the thing too is that this law firm is not like it is independent mm-hmm. from the federation, right? So I have no idea how much the timing is coordinated in terms of when this stuff is going to drop. So that's question number one. I do think that even if it's not 100% intentional, like let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt, right? we have seen some stuff happen at really weird times. It does start to line up in terms of like, Oh, a good thing has happened. Here's an immediate news drop about the lawsuit. And I don't know if it just is coincidence, but I think it was really unfortunate for that to happen. Um, But again, I don't know if there's not a good time for that filing to happen. So true. I think it makes as much sense as anything to try to to try to have it. And everything is filed at like 11 p.m. Like that's just been this entire lawsuit. So that doesn't shock me at all that it came super late on Monday night. And um, I'm sure it's happening during the day. But the way that it finally gets like uploaded into the system when the rest of us will actually know about it. Like that's just kind of part of how this works. Um so some of it is not intentional. Some of it is just kind of the process, but it is it is definitely a, a question in terms of, you know, at the same time as all of the celebrations are happening at the World Cup, you also have U.S. soccer hiring lobbyists to, to try to head off any equal pay questions in terms of like democratic debates and things like that. Like there are definitely intentional choices being made at some levels. And then some of it just kind of seems to be happening as well. So you know, like, I don't think that every single decision is being made to be like, ah, yes, we would like to mess up every good piece of information we ever have about the women because, you know, there's also a disconnect between, like, the person who, like, runs social for the U.S. Women's National Team is, like, not out here trying to screw them over, mm-hmm. right? Like, they are actively working to build this team and, and have been for a long time. So, I, I think that I think and I think Kim McCauley made this point too. Like it is frustrating because like you have a few decision makers who are kind of ruining the work of a lot of other people who do have very good intentions. Um, so I think that's more where I'm trying to look at it in terms of like who's doing what and who has power over what, because some of the the people who are actually like closest to the team have no say in this whatsoever. Well, that seems like a good, albeit ominous, uh, note to end on. I should also add, uh, I I was like budgeting uh, twenty five minutes or so for this one, and obviously here we are. So, Meg, I really appreciate you uh, uh, giving, being generous with the time, as I've already said, but then also like uh, you know saying so many interesting things that I want to just yeah keep asking you questions. I still have about ten questions to go, but I will not ask those for you. Maybe I'll save them for next time. Uh, for now, like, are you okay. just going to sleep until the discovery uh, camp, or do you actually like uh, have to continue to to like hustle until then? So my last trip of the year is Columbus. Okay. I'm not going to the Jacksonville game, but I am going to Columbus. And then after that, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I just, I did like 
on Sunday night, I just put in for like three random vacation days mm-hmm. to be like, I just need to sleep for a while. And um, my wife and I are actually trying to like watch Killing Eve season two. So we just finally started that last night. So like it's it's starting to maybe get a little more normal. But I think by the, the tail end of the month and into the holidays, like I might actually be like a functioning human being again. So we'll we'll find out. All right. Well, uh, I look forward to that. I look forward to, to chatting again. But until then, Meg, thank you very much uh, once again for taking the time. Thank you. 